tensions remain high in Ukraine today with 100,000 Russian troops poised in high readiness. The world waits to find out what Russia's endgame is here. And I'm told we can now go live to Red Square where uh, President Vladimir Putin will spell out his nation's demands. Respected citizens of Russia and the people of what you laughably call the free world, as leader of the United Soviet Socialist, sorry, Russian Federation, I demand the following. That FIA agrees that the Russian Grand Prix may never be won by someone with a dark complexion or earrings, and also that no Finnish national shall be allowed on the podium. Two, that the Azerbaijani Grand Prix, the Hungarian Grand Prix, and heck, why not the Canadian Grand Prix, are now all considered part of the Russian Motorsport Federation. And finally, three, we demand that Vitaly Petrov, Sergei Sirotkin, and Daniel Kvyat be given a drive with one of the top teams. You can keep Nikita Mazepin, though. He's not even good enough to drive a flipping ladder. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth. He's Zog. Hello. And... Yeah. Hello, Finn. Yeah, joining me right on cue is Finn the Cat, who has very little to contribute to the show, but also my son Tycho Jones, who has plenty to contribute. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Yeah, you're covering all your bases <laughs> there, whatever your time zone is. So we'll start off with arguably the biggest news this week, and that is that Lewis Hamilton says he's back. He released an Instagram post which said, I've been away, but now I'm back. Does this mean he's back for Formula One? Yes, I'm going to take it at face value and say that when Lewis Hamilton says he's back, he's back. That's what I'm reading into it. Yeah, as you say, we've had radio silence from Lewis and there's been a lot of speculation as to whether he'd even come back this year. But it looks like he's going to be back in that seat. And yeah, I can't wait to see him lock horns with Max Verstappen again. Tycho, how do you feel about Lewis coming back? Well, is he coming back? Yeah, Lewis is definitely coming back. I saw he posted a photo on Instagram the other day and I believe he was in a very nice apartment looking out over New York or something, the photo that he posted. Well, the photo I saw, he was standing in what looked like Arizona or Colorado Ah. in a great canyon. Yeah, I saw Grand Canyon picture. I saw one of a view of New York, so I don't know which one I was looking at, but (laughs) yeah, man, excited for Lewis. I mean, there was a bit of kind of uncertainty around his contract in between the seasons. Yeah. But I think he probably just went away, dealt with all the disappointment, and now he's coming back. There's kind of not really much time to dilly-dally, is there? Because they don't get that much break. Yeah. Do you think he was always coming back, Zog? I don't know. I hesitate to get inside the head of somebody that I really don't know particularly well and who's maybe you know harder to read than some other people but I don't think it was a foregone conclusion no my sense is that he was genuinely knocked shaken surprised disappointed disillusioned whatever by that last race 
and I think he genuinely needed to take a little bit of time and see how he felt about re-engaging with the sport because it's not something you can do if you're not 100% I think you've got to be completely engaged and really hungry for it yeah I think it's hard to feel a bit disillusioned and you're not in love with it anymore tough gig yeah so Tycho having heard what Zog's got to say knowing that Lewis was disillusioned it will have taken the slight edge off his self-belief is he going to come back stronger or are we going to see a slightly less committed Lewis do you think this year that's a good question you know I hadn't really thought of that yet but I don't know Lewis is a big superstar he's a big big superstar and I feel like he's one of the only drivers which can afford to be like oh I'm not sure if I'm going to come back yeah but I do believe if he comes back, he will throw everything at it. We haven't really seen Lewis in an uncomfortable situation in the car for quite a few years. Yeah. He's had a very strong car, and when he first moved to that Mercedes, he had to put in a bit of work yeah. before he could get it into a position where it was top, and then he could be happy. So we've seen the way Vettel reacted when things weren't going so much his way when he moved to Ferrari. And so we don't really know how he's going to respond this year. I think he's always going to be great. And I think we'll most likely see him be great. But I do think if he's less comfortable and he can't really get a few wins in early, because we don't know what's going to happen, mm. if he can't get his footing, you might see him stray a bit. Yeah, because um, his heart isn't in it. And I think, yeah, just showing that result from last year, obviously he must have felt very disillusioned from the mm. big controversy with the rules. But most other drivers would have just accepted it and been like, yeah, that's me. But because he's been in F1 so long, because he's got so many accolades and championships, he has the position to be like, oh, yeah. that, you know what I mean? That was a bit... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, th- I think I might just challenge that a little bit, Tyker, because I don't think that many drivers would have just taken it and accepted it. I mean, yeah. apart from the fact that quite a few drivers publicly said, yeah, that was a bit of a farce, that was a bit stupid. I think a lot of other drivers would have had a similar reaction. If we're speculating about how it affects his mindset going to this year, I don't think it will affect his self-confidence, his belief in his ability. He knows that what happened was nothing to do with what he did on the track and what he was doing in terms of driving the car. What happened and what cost him the championship was entirely a decision in the moment by an official and a decision that Lewis Hamilton clearly doesn't think was a good one. And I think drivers find it much easier to get over that kind of stuff. Somebody else screwed up. I'm still the greatest. (laughs) So let's get it on. I think as long as that is his mindset, which it will be, I think, he can deliver as much as he ever has. And we could have another really cracking battle between those two again this year. I hope we do. But maybe Russell is going to be a bit of a thorn in Hamilton's side. Probably not in his first year at Mercedes, but who knows? I don't know. They said probably not to his Bahrain performance, and we saw how that happened. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I'm wondering what Toto will allow. I think Toto, who runs that ship very carefully... If he's got any sense, we'll say to George, George, look, you're the future. You're here for the long term. I want you to support Lewis this season and learn about working in this team. And if you win races, fair enough. But there are going to be situations where you're probably not going to be allowed to win a race. We have to favour Lewis, I'm guessing. Mm. I also think that Lewis was always coming back. Because if he wasn't, Mercedes, you know, one of the most profitable organisations on the planet, would have had something to say on the subject. We would have heard about Mercedes' contingency plans to replace him already. They are not going to allow Lewis to make his decision 
on the eve of the Grand Prix, which I believe is the day when the report comes out of the FIA analysis into what happened at the last race mm. last year. So I think it would have emerged. You know, there were an awful lot of leaks in Formula it was One. Just a bit of theatrics, I think, from Lewis. Yeah, I think justifiably too. I think he felt wronged. I think he wanted to consider his situation before he committed to the one that he probably really wants, and that is to get that eighth world championship and he's not going to give up until he's done that it's going to be one of three things isn't it we're either going to see a more motivated Lewis because he failed to do it last year for none of his own reasons a Lewis who is completely unchanged well that ain't going to happen or a Lewis who's had the bit of the edge taken off him disillusioned and knowing what little I do know about him and his character I think he's going to be a bit more determined to win yeah I think that's a fair bet yeah let's see it's too early to tell this is the beginning of the beginning of this season but at least we've got Hamilton still in the mix and looks like he's keen he's raring to go yeah bring it on Uh, who's your bet for this year Tycho who are the top three teams will it be Red Bull Mercedes and Ferrari or will it be Red Bull Mercedes and McLaren would you say I think it will be Ferrari because Red Bull and Mercedes are a given isn't it so in my head at least I don't mind really what happens as long as it's exciting but my gut feeling is that Leclerc and Sainz are very dangerous drivers in a good way. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. They could be extremely powerful as a team because they both seem like extremely happy, determined racers. And I feel like they could be a very dangerous combination if the Ferrari, which we kind of saw in the last few races at the end of last year, yep. we saw out mm. of maybe Sainz, I think. He managed to pick up his, yeah. his racing at the end of the year really nicely over Leclerc. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. Those two, I think we should watch out for. Absolutely right about Sainz. Going into last year, everyone was pumped up about Leclerc, but Sainz was as good as Leclerc a lot of the time. He's and the killer. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. So, yeah, I think they've got a fabulous driver combo at mm-hmm. the moment. I heard, Zog, that Ferrari have been doing an awful lot of work on the engine for this year's season, that they are mimicking the system used by Mercedes now, where they split the turbocharger and the energy recovery and have placed it a lot lower. Basically, Ferrari have cracked the engine problem, is what has been mooted. And if they've got a great engine that matches... Crack the engine problem in a legal and in no yeah. way boundary-pushing... <laughs> right, yeah, is that... Well, let's hope just so. Just confirming, just checking. I just, you know, yeah, yeah. I have to ask. But I think Ferrari could be a danger to themselves this year because Sainz and Leclerc are vying for position. I think Sainz has shown that he can really wrestle with Leclerc, who is absolutely one of the greatest out there. My concern is that we will have two Ferrari drivers on the same piece of track at the same time and someone isn't going to give way, that there will be collisions. I'm saying it now, there will be collisions between Ferraris this year. Mm. Okay, Possibility indeed. Yeah. Now, talking about Ferrari... Have you seen the first car? Because the day that we're recording this, only one 2022 F1 car has been revealed. And it's the most uninteresting of them all, you could argue. That is, <laughs> it's not the one we were all waiting for. <laughs> it wasn't, no. The Haas VF22, which has been designed and is now being managed in Maranello. Because you had to reduce the number of people working on your cars according to the new budget cap rules so a bunch of people who are working for a ferrari at, at maranello are now working for Haas at maranello so in theory Haas will be much improved 
But it's hard to tell that from looking at the car. Have you seen the car? Have you studied it, Zog? I've seen it. I can't say I've studied it, but certainly my first impression was that looks an awful lot like the Haas of last year. Yeah. I mean, honestly, at first glance, I really couldn't tell much of a difference. It looked like last year's car. That's it. Given that 2022 was supposed to be quite a big change for the rules, we've got big aerodynamic changes, we might have expected the cars to look a little bit different. And actually, what we saw from the Haas launch was much more like the cars of last year than what the FIA had shown last year as sort of being likely examples of what this year's cars would look like. But isn't that just a classic example of the concept always looking like so much cooler than the actual thing? Yeah. Yes, it is. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they always disappoint. It's like a universal car thing where you look at the concept and you're like, core. And then it comes out and you're like, Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. The, and there's also probably that element of the designers maybe just carrying over more of last year's car into this year than they might have done. Mm. In defence of Haas, I think the fact that their livery for this year is very, very, very similar to what they ran last year, yeah. that will disguise a lot of changes. And if you look at the VF22, I would imagine the tub is more or less the same. It's certainly got the new style rear wing. It's certainly got the new style front wing and nose. And even the side pods are different if you look at them. And did you know that the cars have got to stand, I think I'm writing saying this, the cars have to withstand an 80% increase in side impact testing this year. They've got to be 80% stronger. That is a heck of a lift, isn't it? Yeah. That's a big shit, yeah. So there have to be differences Due to that, surely the tub is going to be more bulky. Well, I don't know. My guess is that increasing your side impact protection by 80% or increasing the level of force or impact that's required to achieve a certain amount of damage, penetration, whatever, wouldn't necessarily mean that you need to change the shape or your design of the tub, but it might mean that maybe every bit of carbon fibre in a certain portion of that tub now has to be 50% thicker or 50% yeah. heavier yeah, or something like that. You know, exactly. And I'm pretty sure that it's easy enough to increase the strength of most of that structure by adding more layers of carbon fibre in certain areas or maybe adding some kind of internal bracing rather than by fundamental changes to the design of the tub is what I'm thinking. Having said all this about the Haas VF22, to be fair, Haas have said two things. One... This isn't the car that we will be running at Barcelona. This is our first iteration of it. So it's a prototype of a prototype. And second of all, this was a render, not actually pictures of a real car, right. I think. I think you're right, yes. Yeah. I believe that is correct. Yeah, they just showed pictures. Also, for the people who follow Kevin Magnuson on Instagram, the ex-Hass driver, they will have seen that he posted an image of Herbie, the little VW Beetle, with like a blue and white and red stripe down it saying this is the new Haas car for 2022. So I thought that was kind of funny, like a little dig at Haas from, yeah. from the ex The insider's perspective. That is interesting. Yeah, I'm going to check that out actually. But I genuinely think the biggest problem that the Haas team will encounter this year won't be trying to claw their way up the grid and hoping that Mazepin doesn't crash into Schumacher at every race. I think their biggest problem could be the fact that all their sponsorship is Russian at the moment and there could be some massive sanctions this year on trade with Russia 
and that could throttle the amount of money that Haas will have available. Their main sponsor is, I think it's fair to say that they are originally Russian, but they are a multinational, but Ural Kali, who are the sponsors of the Haas team, they are the biggest creator of fertilizer, I believe, or one of the biggest creators of fertilizer in the world. So if they don't come up with the goods, Haas are in the <laughs> shit. See what I did there. You may remember that last year, during August, I spent three glorious weeks swimming across Wales for a TV show that I made called Novio Address, Swimming Home. And the camera work on that series was extraordinary for a number of reasons. We had great cameramen shooting from a boat. We had underwater, waterproof cameras. But best of all, I was followed for my entire journey by a little Sputnik, a little co-traveller, because that's what Sputnik means, fellow traveller. I had, a, a well, several drones actually following me for the entire swim. And the man in charge of the drone photography is Ben Roberts, who's on the line now from exactly where in North Wales? Ben, where are you? Hi, Gareth. I am near Bangor in North Wales. I'm just on the edge of Snowdonia National Park. And you're too kind. Now I know why you referred to it as Sputnik. So, <laughs> Fellow traveller, that's what it means. And it was great. You know, I found myself in the middle of a six and a half kilometre reservoir and the safety boat was some distance from me. But always there was that little drone following me or leading me on i was never alone thanks to you ben was it a difficult shoot i was very concerned that filming lakes around wales for how long were we two weeks was it two weeks of swimming over three weeks yeah i was concerned that it was going to be difficult to actually create the variety that we needed in the shots because you know there was a lot of repetition there was a lot of open water and yeah one little man in the middle of a big dark <laughs> lake <laughs> but surprisingly we had an awful lot of variety the scenery was you know spectacular as you would expect and it wasn't as difficult as i would have expected and the one thing that actually made it easier was the fact that we were in a great big open environment it was very predictable it allowed me to fly backwards fly sideways get all these amazing angles that normally would be very difficult because you would be restricted by buildings or trees or hills or whatever so yeah it wasn't as difficult as i'd expected and it turned out quite well in the end i don't know about you yeah it turned out very well in the end not only did i manage to complete the challenge but the shots the variety of shots that you got from the drone were extraordinary but ben you don't just film people swimming across Wales. I know you do a lot of vehicle filming as well. We did some vehicle filming as well on the shoot in that Hyundai Tucson I had. But, but word of advice to anyone who's got a drone and they've just bought themselves a really nice new car, want to go and film the thing, you can't just go out and do it anywhere, can you? There are strict regulations you have to follow and there are licenses that you have to have to be able to do this too. Is that right? Sure, that's right. The main reason for the licensing is in order to regulate the industry. These days, if you want to fly commercially, you require a GVC certificate, General Visual Line of Sight. That used to be called the PFCO, Permission for Commercial Operations. The benefit of doing that, it ensures that people are correctly insured and it ensures that they know what they're doing. And for me, the difficult job when filming around roads, which is what I do on a regular basis, 
mostly in the world of cycling, in fact. But cycling and uh, filming cycling and filming cars, the two overlap. They're, they're really very similar. So you do need to be very careful with what you're doing when it comes to legalities and, and also looking after the general public around you. Um, so yep. Safety is always a number one priority and i guess the size and weight of your drone determines how safe the equipment that you're using is as well so tell me a little about the weight restrictions and licensing regarding drones you are less restricted depending on the size of your drone so if your drone is under 250 grams that would be a Mavic Mini for most people, or Mavic Mini 2. You have a lot of freedom. You're allowed to fly pretty much wherever you like. You're not allowed to fly near airports or aerodromes, obviously, and very busy roads like motorways, for example, you've got to stay well away from. However, for most people, majority of drones and Mavics and the Phantoms that, that most people tend to fly these days, all DJI drones, you need to stay 50 meters away from a public highway. And ideally, you need to fly within 500 meters of where you take off from. The most important thing is that you maintain a visual line of sight. That's something that comes up again and again when you're going through your training. You just have to keep the drone within sight. And some of the techniques that we use when we're filming cars make that a little bit difficult, but it's always something we're trying to achieve. So one thing that we did whilst we were filming, what reservoir were we at? We filmed the car at Clyrewen. Clyrewen. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful place and some amazing bridges and dams and the like. And in order to capture all that, it's sometimes very difficult to do from a static location. Ideally, what you do is you would jump out the car, walk away from the road 50 metres to a safe takeoff point, and then you'd have a 500 metre radius from your takeoff point where you could then film up and down a section of road. Sometimes that's really difficult to do. Sometimes you're in a tight valley it's almost impossible to do that but as long as you've got should we say a sparsely populated area you're then in a position where you could actually film from the car something which i like to call fly and drive i sit in the passenger seat you in this instance were driving and we were able to maintain a constant communication between us i was able to keep the drone within a visual line of sight and we were able to film a far greater area all in one go and just get that done and get some incredible shots in a very short space of time. Yep, you were definitely a one-take wonder, Ben. <laughs> uh, I remember when we did that, you sat in the passenger seat, I drove the car, I could see you looking at the display of what the drone was seeing, but I also saw that your peripheral vision was very much on the position of the drone in the air at the same time. That's tough, isn't it? It is. There's a lot of multitasking that seems to go on. It's funny how intuitive it becomes. Practice makes perfect, I guess, but there's always surprises and you do have to have your wits about you, especially if you're in a moving vehicle. You might be doing 30, 40 miles per hour and more. And so you're always having to see what's coming up ahead. And you are partly reliant on the driver as well, just alerting you, which you seem to take to instantly, uh, which was very helpful. <laughs> I guess that's probably because... I used to fly a lot of radio-controlled model aircraft, Ben, when I was a young man. So I'm aware of the needs of the remote pilot, let's say. Actually, I've got to ask you, how did you end up as a drone pilot? What's the background for you that got you into being able to be a professional drone cameraman? Model aircraft, actually, uh, as no well, way. I started off as well. Um, <laughs> and I, I was very lucky when I was younger. My grandfather actually used to buy me aircraft. He actually flew in Lancasters during the war. Wow. 
Respect. He had an interest in flying and it seemed to rub off on me. And it was something that I just did as a bit of fun. And I then got into filming and creating videos. And when drones came about, it almost was the perfect synergy. So a friend of mine suggested that I perhaps do a commercial qualification. And it all came about a little bit accidentally. But in terms of developing the skills to actually fly drones these days they are an awful lot easier than the old model aircraft that we used to fly but the majority of the skills came from playing computer games <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah because you know applies so, as a matter of fact the way that i like to fly my drone is quite different to many other people i reverse the controls on my drone i fly something called mode three most people fly mode two and that is far closer to how you would control say a game like call of duty or halo so that's how I like to fly my drone. Yep, I think I understand. In model aircraft terms, that mode is where you've got the throttle and either your rudder or tail rotor, if it's a helicopter, on your left-hand stick. And on the right-hand stick, you've got your roll and uh, climb and dive. Now, in aircraft terms, you pull back on the joystick to climb. If you've got it set up like a game, you push forward to go up, I suppose. I get that. Exactly. Yeah, it's reversed. And as a matter of fact, I find it quite difficult reverting back to how I used to fly model aircraft. So it's something that I found that worked for me. And it's something that I've stuck to ever since. Yeah, so that's really helpful. And then the other thing that I kind of got into in recent years was the FPV side of drone flying, which is a whole different thing altogether. You're wearing the goggles, completely immersive. I've actually done that from a car before, which... Uh, oh, but that was hard. We'll say it was on a closed road, shall we? As your lawyer, yes, we will, <laughs> yes. That was a completely different ball game when the car's moving around you and you can't see your surroundings. So that's something I probably won't be repeating in a hurry. No, man, that would give anyone travel sickness, I'm sure, where what you're seeing doesn't match up with what your body is experiencing. Ah, Okay, Ben, tell me more about your work as a professional drone pilot, videographer. It must be a blossoming industry now. Using drones in the world of media and filmmaking is quite a new thing. And we often are the forgotten aspects of a commercial shoot in particular, and also in filmmaking. They're a more recent addition to the world of film. So during a shoot, we've got product shots we need to get. Then we need to get the presenter shots, something you'll know a lot about. Yeah, man, they um, take ages. We'll then need the in-car <laughs> chat, uh, which is a whole nother faff. We've got to set up the cameras, set up the audio for the in-car conversation. Then we need the tracking shots. So hopefully you'll have a follow car. And then you can film all those moving shots, which give that sort of dynamism to the film. And then you have a load of statics. So you might jump out of a car, have a tripod set up or a gimbal or a slider on the side of the road. And now you'll be looking for maybe a stunning hairpin or a nice flowing piece of tarmac in a valley or something like that. And then finally, the inconvenience would be the drone shots, which are like, oh, right, OK, get the drone guy who's been twiddling his thumbs for the whole day and... <laughs> get him to get the shot so so that's the point at which i then hopefully will kick in and you decide on what shots you want depending on the environment you let the environment decide and sometimes if the scene allows i'll be looking to get as tight a shot as possible really in close to the car and get those real amazing action shots that hopefully will lead to a more engaging film one of the drone filming techniques that we use during Novio Adre is what 
we refer to as jousting. Go on, for people who haven't worked it out already, explain what that is. Yeah, so a, a jousting move is if you were, in that instance, you were swimming towards the drone and then the drone would fly straight over your head just like a jousting move and hopefully it'd be really low and just get that nice flyover shot. The same thing can be done with cars and can be the more hazardous shot because it's quite hard to judge your height. You've got a reading on the drone that tells you your height from your takeoff point, but that might not necessarily be the height above the car. That's another shot which you need to be very careful with and ideally only do on a closed road or at least a road where you've got complete control because you're flying low over a road and who knows who might come up behind you. You see jousting shots on Top Gear. You know, they're blasting down a runway and the drone advances towards the car in the opposite direction of the car, and you get that increased relative speed between the two, and that gives you the impression that the car is travelling more quickly than it actually is, and it could be travelling quickly. Drones, presumably, if you're fairly close to a car, and a car's coming towards you, that car is going to shift an awful amount of air and create an air pressure wave, a fairly substantial one. Surely that's going to upset the drone, isn't it? You're going to hit that block effectively. It's not something that I tend to worry about too much. The drones these days, especially the Mavic drones, they're very good at having very low profile, so they tend to cut through the air very well. Uh You do notice when you fly from a, say, a wooded area into the open that suddenly there's a crosswind, and then all of a sudden you might notice that restriction on the drone when you're trying to fly in one direction and an acceleration of the drone when you fly in with the wind the wind is something that really you do have to be careful with and also when it is a windy day you probably need to limit those really close shots you'll notice if there's a shoot and most of the drone shots are quite wide a big open landscape that chances are it's probably quite a windy day and how many drones have you lost over the years (laughs) um Touchwood, I've been pretty lucky so far. I've never lost a regular drone whilst filming. I once had one in Majorca. It disconnected from the controller and it landed in the top of a spindly tree and I was filming a cycling event and I had to climb up this tree about, I don't know, 20 feet up this spindly thing that could barely support my weight until I eventually managed to just about reach it and grabbed it before it fell out the tree. And it was covered in scratches. And I got back to the car that I was sharing with uh, another fellow cameraman, wondered why I was covered in twigs and scratches. So luckily I've avoided that. I lost an FPV drone once in North Wales near Blynoff Astyniog. It's still up there on the hillside somewhere. So if if anyone's keen and looking for an FPV drone with a GoPro 7 stuck to the top, it's still there. (laughs) Gee, that would be a good find. It could be expensive. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you saw anything of the Race of Champions over the weekend up in Sweden, I think they were. Um, They shot a great deal of that. They had a camera on a wire, but they also had little drones following the cars. And they're shooting in sub-zero temperatures. They must have had either a lot of switchable battery packs or an awful lot of drones to do that because you lose battery performance in cold weather, don't you? You do, yes. I've filmed a lot in cold temperatures, and luckily a lot of the batteries these days have a self-heating mechanism inside them. Ah. They take a little while to warm up, but once they do, then they're good to go. Most of them have a lower operating temperature, 
but generally in in most places where you fly you can get away with it but yeah referring to the race of champions stuff they're one of the few racing championships that have actually cottoned on to the benefits of using drones and i think they use a perhaps dji uh, inspire 2s which i do have one of those as well they can actually send a live feed back to the controller which can then be put straight out of the live feeds it's a great idea i wish more coverage of motorsport used drones during the live footage i actually once tried to get my foot in the door with the btcc but that door was firmly closed they Uh-oh. they were not interested sadly well i don't know anyone at the btc actually i do know someone i'm just thinking about that at the btcc i will call them up and put in a good word for you ben because ben it was a joy working with you particularly as you're a car nut like me so while we're talking cars you know we weren't making the program ben and i spent most of the time talking about cars what's your reaction lewis is coming back he was always going to come back wasn't he <laughs> The only benefit I can find for him not winning the championship last year is it perhaps will give him the added incentive to try and come back and become an eight-time world champion this year. Exactly. And to see him racing against George Russell will be an absolute joy. Yeah. I'm delighted that, well, fingers crossed, he is coming back and it's hopefully going to be a great season. Ben, and we'll have you back on On Speed at some point soon as well. We'll talk when the F1 season gets going. We'll talk about that, I think, because I know you've got plenty to say on it. Ben, what a treat talking to you, mate, and happy landings. Thank you, Gareth. Great to speak to you and see you again. Last week, I was in the process of trying to organise a car for review for Gareth Jones on Speed and talking to the mighty Ford Motor Company, who said that they would give me a Mac-E to review, which I was very excited about, but I could only have it for a very, very short period of something like 24 to 48 hours, which I didn't deem to be enough for my needs. You know, I need a car for a good few days to go and have a good run on it and get familiar with it. And the reason that Ford gave me for not having very many Mac E's on the press fleet that they could loan out at the moment, why they had to keep it short, was all down to the semiconductor shortage which began during the initial period of lockdown during the pandemic. Do you know about the semiconductor shortage, Sock? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's been moderately prominent in the media from time to time. If you're following the news, if you're watching enough news, you will certainly have heard about the semiconductor shortage. I've been trying to understand why it's actually happening. And as far as I can understand, the reason is... During lockdown, first of all, car sales dropped. So the producers of semiconductors, which go into the chips that all car use, turned their attention to making semiconductors and supplying them to domestic technology, you might say, to phones, to iPads, to televisions or whatever device in your house. And so they stopped turning out the devices that the car industry needed. And it's taking a long while for them to catch up. That's as it's been explained to me. My understanding is that it's a bit broader than that. And the way that the car industry figures in it is also a little bit different. Several things happened that contributed to the shortage that we're having at the moment. First of all, the pandemic meant that at the start of that period in particular, there were a lot of factory shutdowns, you know, temporary factory shutdowns, but nonetheless factory shutdowns that affected production. Car makers anticipated that their sales would be lower in the pandemic, and so they cancelled a lot of orders. 
as it happens, pandemic sales of cars were much stronger than they expected. And so there's a particular problem for the car industry in that they simply hadn't ordered from the semiconductor industry all the chips they needed for the cars that they have actually been building in the last 18 months. Then you add to that the effect on production of the pandemic itself, factory shutdowns, or when factories are getting back into production, they're being affected by having a certain proportion of their workforce off work because of COVID. Right. Then there's also the fact that during lockdown, during the pandemic period, a lot more of us have been buying... Well, we've either been buying stuff because we're bored and we've got nothing else to do, so we're just buying stuff and buy, you know, a lot of the stuff that you buy has chips in it. But then there has been an increase in buying a lot of devices to help people work at home. A lot of people yeah. are buying laptops, tablets, newer smartphones because they're working from home and they need to upgrade their working from home tech. So that's happened. And then on top of that, there have been a couple of fires at major semiconductor manufacturing plants, one in China, maybe one in Taiwan as well. So several things have happened during this pandemic period that have created a bit of a perfect storm for bad semiconductor supply chain. According to Jay Ward, who is the Director of Product Communications at Ford of Europe, he says that they have prioritised vehicles that are in high demand so with the limited number of chips available to them they're making sure they've got the right chips for things that are selling in very high numbers and at the moment that is the transit would you believe the ford transit and the cougar fev the plug-in hybrid mm. version of the cougar it doesn't seem to have affected tesla very much, though. Ah, uh, well, yeah, I was going to get on to them because Tesla will be feeling quite smug at the moment because before COVID, Tesla had started to move towards designing and making their own chips, which is very much against the trend of outsourcing all of your manufacturing, you know, yep. buying as many components in as you can. Of course, Tesla is one of those companies that has been very keen on vertical integration, on doing all of their own manufacturing where they can and seeing a lot of benefits in it. And clearly see why, in this case, having their own supply chain of chips would be tremendously advantageous to them. Yeah. They've already been using chips that they designed and I think Samsung were making for them. Uh -huh. And I think this is the first year where they're supposed to be using chips in their vehicles that they have made themselves in their own plants. I don't know what the deal with Samsung is, but I assume that Tesla were perhaps a bit higher up the priority of customers for chips, given that it was uh, their own designs that were being produced rather than them buying a generic Samsung design. Yeah. So I assume Tesla have been in a better position to get the chips they wanted from Samsung. So they haven't been quite as badly affected as other manufacturers. They've also worked the problem in a different way as well, Zog. They uh, apparently, according to CNBC, Tesla removed one of the electronic control units from the steering racks in China-built Model 3s and Model Ys just to make sure that they hit their Q4 sales targets. So what are they doing? Selling cars without this steering assistance now? Is that what they're well, doing? I was going to say, yeah, what exactly are they missing out there? Yeah. Realistically, you know, surely whatever it was that they've removed there in order to ease their supply problems, I'm sure that thing that they removed 
It's not going to be safety critical. It's not going to be something that will affect the braking. Let's hope it's so. It's not going to be something that will affect the safety of the steering. Yeah. You know what I mean? It yeah. has to be... Non-critical. It's fine to remove the air conditioning from a car. You know, it's fine yeah. to remove the electric seats. But it's a whole different deal if you're talking about any system that has safety implications or is going to change the way the car drives significantly. Yeah. It seems just looking at the figures... The car production has been down between 8 and 21% with different manufacturers, you know, the likes of Toyota and VW Group across the board. So it's been quite a significant setback for them. Mm-hmm. But while we're on the subject of electronics or electrics in cars, I discovered something recently this week which I had no idea about. And, you know, Neo, who are the... Chinese startup, you might say, producing very attractive electric cars in China at the moment. They've got a range of cars out. What's it called? The ET3? Is that the one I'm thinking of? The ET5 looks not sure. Okay. very cute. Looks like a cross between a Tesla Model 3 and the Model Y. It's a cute looking thing. But shockingly, I had no idea Neo were doing this. They're doing battery swaps in their cars in China. Uh, Neo have this network of several thousand power swap stations, they call them. You drive your Neo into one of their power swap stations and completely autonomously, your vehicle is reversed into a kind of a shed and a platform rises up from underneath, rather like putting the pod in Thunderbird 2, removes the entire battery pack from underneath the car unscrews it and replace you with a fully charged one and it's enormously popular neo are selling huge amounts of cars in china and have even introduced power swap stations i believe in norway which we know to be the leader in evs in europe so maybe this whole range or recharging anxiety thing that prospective ev buyers are nervous of can be sidestepped by returning to something that Renault suggested with their Fluence when they were doing battery swaps. What are your thoughts on battery swaps? Is it going to be easier to achieve than recharging, Z? Whether it's easy to achieve, we can do both of them at the moment. Yeah. We've achieved both of them. I think this is a thing where this will be part of the mixed picture of recharging and refill options that are going to be powering electrically driven vehicles. Battery swaps are not going to replace recharging, and recharging isn't going to be so dominant that it's going to keep battery swaps out of the picture. I think these are two ways of getting a fully charged battery into your vehicle that both have a future, and each of them is going to find their use case, their users, the applications where that's the right way to refill rather than the other way. A battery swap is going to be a quicker way, for example, of getting a full charge into your vehicle than recharging. And it may also be suitable for battery technologies that are in some ways trickier than lithium-ion technology or some of the rechargeable battery technology that we're using at the moment and are, are happy with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of recharging cycles. You may have battery packs that require much more careful recharging, for example, Mm -hmm. or much slower recharging, but achieve much higher energy density, for example. So there might be a very good practical reason why you want to do this kind of mechanically more complicated thing of swapping a battery in order to get better performance. Talking about higher energy density from batteries, I was 
trying to understand the chemistry and the practicality of aluminium air or aluminium oxygen hmm. batteries, which are many times more energy dense than the technology we're using at the moment. But as far as I know, I mean, if you think about it, aluminium air, you can't build anything lighter than that. That's going to be the lightest battery option you can conceive of if you're not using, I don't know, hydrogen and aerogel. That about the only way you can make something lighter. Ah, uh, but you've got to remember the electrochemistry. Yep. There's that thing about, I can't remember what that term for it is, but to do with the amount of energy that is contained in the chemical bond that gets broken and remade when you burn something. or You're doing the chemical reaction in the battery that is releasing the electricity. Yep. I think a zinc-sulfur battery, I think, is in theory the highest performance battery you could get because of the electrochemistry of the chemical bond between zinc and sulphur. It's much trickier chemistry to work with in practice and to get electricity out of than zinc-carbon chemistry, right. for example. Yep. You know, old-school batteries, the old crappy batteries that nobody uses anymore because they're not as good as alkaline batteries, are zinc-carbon batteries, and it's very easy to make a zinc-carbon battery. Zinc-sulphur, I believe, much harder... Anyway, fascinating. Ramble over for now. Yeah, I was trying to understand how aluminium air batteries work. And the best explanation I heard was that an aluminium air battery is somewhere in between a conventional, for a better word, chemical battery and a fuel cell. The way in which it works is somewhere in between the two and that you basically use up all the aluminium, is that right, in this chemical uh, process? And you well, can't recharge it. You then have to replace all the aluminium elements. So in combination with battery swap, an aluminium air battery is the solution because you can't recharge it, battery swap. Disassemble the whole thing and rebuild a new one. You're right in that in this theoretical case where somebody had made an aluminium air battery that you're doing a battery swap with, that would be, I think, exactly the kind of thing that you probably wanted. It would need recharging or rebuilding yep. off-site, out of the vehicle in some very special kind of facility. As I understand it, there are aluminium air or aluminium oxygen same thing, batteries available at the moment. But they're emergency, long shelf life, high energy density, emergency battery packs. Yep. Now, in relation to this kind of fuel cell battery, exactly what is it? Rechargeable versus non-rechargeable. I think there's a lot of sort of continuum here and things are a lot less binary, a lot less rechargeable versus non-rechargeable or battery versus fuel cell, as one might often think because crappy old non-rechargeable batteries are actually rechargeable. They're only slightly rechargeable, but they are a tiny bit rechargeable. It's a matter of degree. If you take an old zinc carbon battery that's almost run down and you try and recharge it, you will get a little bit of charge back into it. And in a sense, the only difference between that and a wonderful lithium-ion battery in your cell phone, your computer, whatever, is that that lithium-ion battery tolerates being discharged and recharged much, 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 much better than the almost expired zinc carbon battery. Right. And a lot of that, as I understand it, has to do with the kind of detailed nano-level processes that happen on the surface of the electrodes in the battery. Because when your battery is charging or discharging, generally something physical happens at the surface of the electrode as well as something chemical happening. Yeah. When something chemical happens, something physical happens as well. When you turn that aluminium into aluminium oxide, the aluminium oxide takes up a little bit more volume than the aluminium, so you get a physical change. Yeah. Basically, your electrodes 
degrade over time. Yep. You create originally your perfect electrode and whether it has to be perfectly smooth or whether it's got a particular kind of roughness or a particular kind of nano structure that helps that electrode to work, that electrode gets damaged by the process of being a battery over time. And the best rechargeable batteries from a recharging point of view are the ones that use materials and are designed in such a way that that degradation of the electrodes over time is minimised. And I think one of the reasons why an aluminium air battery at the moment is kind of a one-shot deal rather than a rechargeable battery is that the way that the aluminium electrode degrades as you take charge out of the battery, it gets very badly kind of corroded, basically. And the material challenge of managing that is one we haven't come up with a solution to yet. Work in progress. There's an awful lot going on in the car industry and also the aviation industry. As I understand it, the aviation industry are saying that the only way that we're going to have effective electrical aircraft, electrically powered aircraft in the future, is using aluminium oxygen batteries. And if the aviation industry is forced into a situation of creating really effective I don't know, rechargeable or battery swappable units. Hopefully that will filter down to cars. I'm not going to hold me breath, but I'm watching it very, very closely. So we've got to wrap this up now. I've got to ask you one last thing before we end the show. Okay, okay. What's the latest on your car? Uh, no update to report this week. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed there'll be something more positive next time. Let's wait and see. Fingers crossed. And next time on On Speed, Sarah hopefully will be back from Australia, all brown and lovely. And Alex Goy will join me and Zog. Say goodbye, Zog. Goodbye. For the next On Speed. See you then, guys. Bye. For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!